I want to talk about being selfless today. You know, the church was designed to be an irresistible community. Irresistible. Can't stand to be away from it. Yet people are not always drawn to it. Well, my question for you is, what do we have to do to change it? What do we have to do to change being a people who are satisfied and content to becoming a people who are irresistible to the world outside. One of the things that happens, is going to happen, is through discipleship. Uh, ladies, I'm sorry, uh, this, this has developed into a men's uh, meeting, a men's study. If you want to come in, uh, you'll be interviewed and we'll let you that way. But uh, uh, we're, we're, uh, it's going to be a, a phenomenal study, and it's taken right from Jesus' own words and, and actions. So uh, I'm excited about it. And yeah, I know, there are some old men in there, but uh, the important thing is there's some men in there. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13, Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue, but while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. It is love that strengthens the church. Love strengthens the church. Write that down, underline it. Ladies, you who? I hope you're listening to me and not to uh, Tupac, Nopac, or whatever his name is. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much, but the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there's only one god. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords, but we know that there is only one God, the Father who created everything, and we live for Him. And there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we have been, we have been given life. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real, so when they eat food, that's been offered to the idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom or liberty does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble or sin. For if, we see, if, for if others see you with your superior knowledge or liberty, eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak brother for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by, and, and when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble.
Okay, ladies, I love you, but there is a guy behind you that is going to make sure you're not yakking. Pay attention, I'll be done with this really, really quick. So here's a mom. She has two little boys, and she's trying to teach them about serving. And she said, I need one of you to help me take, by taking out the trash. This was after, after supper. And she held out a trash bag as the two boys argued over which one was going to do it. And she was hoping that her oldest boy was going to take initiative. And she looked at him and said, now, Johnny, what would Jesus do? And he stopped. Johnny stopped arguing and began to think for a moment. Then he nodded and he looked to the bag, took the bag from his mother and turning to his younger brother Johnny stuffed the bag in his hands and says, here you go, Billy. It's your turn to be Jesus. <laughs> it's your turn to be Jesus. Selfless, selflessness doesn't come easy. Have you ever noticed you don't have to teach your kids the word mine? You don't have to teach your kids no. You don't have to teach them how to tell the truth. You have to teach them how to tell the truth, but you don't have to teach them how to lie. You don't have to teach them how to do the wrong thing. That comes naturally. But you do have to instruct them in teaching them how to do right. So how do we learn to be selfless? The church is a community by God, designed by God to be radically inclusive. Think about that. Who is it that we don't want to be a part of our church? You know, those other people? We don't want those other people to be a part of our church? Well, who are those other people? Because where I come from, I was one of them. So I wouldn't be able to fit into your church. We don't want them. We don't want them because they're noisy. We don't want them because they... They're this or they're that. They don't dress really nice. Sometimes they don't act really nice. Sometimes they are disruptive. You know, we don't want those kind of people. Maybe they have a different political persuasion. Maybe they have a different um, social agenda. Maybe they've had a problem with a certain addiction. Maybe they're people who like the same sex. Maybe there are people that come through that door and they're HIV positive. See, we don't want those people. You know, I sit in the chair that they sat in, I might catch the heebie-jeebies. But see, for the church to be irresistible, we have got to be inclusive. Well, you know, I don't, uh, I don't go to those Baptist churches because there's nothing in there but a bunch of hypocrites. What better place for hypocrites to be? Let's get them off the street. If you know a hypocrite, everybody's got a hypocrite friend. Bring them on in. I love hypocrites. I love hypocrites, atheists, agnostics, and uh, uh, tattooed women. I, I, just, I love them all. Here's the thing. For us... To be a church that's irresistible. We've got to be inclusive.
We're not embracing sin. We're not condoning sin. But we want to give everybody an opportunity to be here and be irresistible. See, when, when the church is alive, it's, a, it's magnetic in it, and it's going to attract that. And, and the community that we have is one that people naturally long for, and the church is a community built with support and encouragement and friendship and dedication and service and love. The world offers substitutes, but when the church is alive, when the church does what it was designed to do, nothing can compare to the quality of community that's offered. Nothing. I've seen us become that community. I've gone to see someone from the church that was in the hospital only to find out that five other people have visited them. See... Uh, in other places, that's the, that's the preacher's job. No, it's the people's job. Amen. I'm going to be in the, in the church, in the church. I'm going to be in the hospital, getting my back split open. They're going to cut stuff out and install a zipper if they got to go in again. I want to see every single one of you come on up and see me or send flowers or cash. See, I've seen families in need of prayer and encouragement and support, and we minister to them without any kind of, of, of encouragement by the preacher. They see it and it happens. I've seen people taking food and meals to families to help them out. You know, if you, co- if you, go, to the, if you go to the hospital... Uh, you come home and, and we, you're, you're inundated by the good cooks in this church. And they are going to fatten you up. Why? Because it is a church of community. What confuses me is why so many people are not drawn to the, to the church. You know, not just our church, to any church. Why are, they, why are they still people that are out there on Sunday mowing their lawn, playing things that they could be doing in the afternoon, and probably are? Why aren't they drawn to the church? If we have what they need both spiritually and personally, why don't people come? Why is it we long for community of heaven, and yet sometimes we neglect the community of the church? Could it be that church, the church that we have, isn't quite as irresistible as we want it to be or thought it should be? Look at 1 Corinthians 8.1. Paul says, Now regarding your question about food that's been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue, but while knowledge makes us feel important, it's the love that strengthens the church. An irresistible community is unified, mature, and alive, and loving, and most importantly, selfless. Jesus is a perfect example of this. In Matthew 20, 28, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There are people who come to church expecting it and its leaders and the congregation to meet all of their personal needs. 
It's, it's what have you got for me? Well, you don't have this program. You don't have that program. You don't have a teen program. You don't have a young marriage program. You don't have a this program or that. Where's your ladies' Bible study, by the way? Where's your men's group? Oh, and where is the this and the that group? And how many mission trips are you guys taking? You know, it was, I want a church that's going to be taking, my kids are going to be going on mission trips. I need that. My children need that. Worship should be how God wants it, not how they want it. People should lay out the, the uh, red carpet for their arrival, there's the feeling. And while hospitality and relevance are important, it's the attitude of people that's the problem. A church full of people who come to see what they can get out of it is not irresistible at all. In order for the church to become the irresistible community, we've got to be selfless. And that brings me to the first point. And they're going to go by quick here. What is expected of us as believers? Uh, there were certain controversial issues every Christian generation must deal with. In Paul's day, it was food. And here's the dilemma. The Jews were God's chosen people in the Old Covenant. But now a new covenant had come, and there were plenty of honest, well-intentioned people who were just trying to figure out where the Jewish law ended and Christianity began. And, and essentially, there was a problem with the Jews who became Christians. Some of them felt that anyone who wanted to become a Christian had to first become a Jew. And so... They felt that all the Jewish laws and customs should be faithfully practiced by anyone who became a Christian. And in Jewish society, food laws were the mo one of the most important things that you, could, that you could do. And what you ate and who you ate with was a matter of purity. The rabbinic tradition, there were 613 laws. 613 different laws that the rabbis had to uphold. Break one and you broke the whole. 229 of those laws pertain to food and to fellowship. With Jews and Gentiles becoming Christians, there was a divide in Christianity that was developing, and, and the Jew, Gentiles ate foods that the Jews did not accept as Saperstein and Goldstein. And as a Gentile, I couldn't eat, you couldn't eat with me. We couldn't, have, we couldn't have a meal together because I was unclean. And aren't you glad that we don't have that anymore, that we can have a meal, we can have fellowship with anybody? Amen. Saved and unsaved, we can have that fellowship. There was a paradox that had to be dealt with here. 
And, and the Jews tried to resolve this problem by saying that Jew, Gentile Christians needed to become Jews before they could become Christians. And these people were known as Judaizers. They mixed, they mixed the law with grace. And it was very confusing. They didn't realize that Jesus' blood made them clean, not following food rituals. And the second point then is Christian liberty. And boy, this is, this is where your shoe gets really t- tight on your foot. He proposes a simple solution. Jesus came to set us free from the law. That's it. You remember the story in, in the book of Acts where, where Peter was feeling all spiritual and pious up on the rooftop and, and the, the sheet was let down with all kinds of pork chops and bacon and shrimp and lobster and crab and all the creepy crawly things that, that good Jews didn't eat. And the voice of heaven, it says the angel of God, which I believe was the Lord, said, take and eat. And he says, I can't, you know, arise and kill. <laughs> can't do it, I'm a good Jew. And he says, what you say is unclean is no longer unclean, Peter. There's nothing that is unclean anymore because Jesus Christ died to fulfill the law. While there may not be anything wrong with the food that you eat, there is a wrong way to eat it. If your brother's faith is hurt by your eating, then your eating is sinful because you've caused your brother to stumble. So what does Christian liberty have to do with selflessness? People today, I see people today exercising their liberty, which are the biblical gray areas. And there are things not specifically noted in Scripture as being good or bad. It's, it's, it's silent. And yet there are well-meaning preachers and teachers in the churches today who want to build a theology on something that is silent in Scripture. If God didn't say, if it didn't say, thus saith the Lord, and, and forbade a partaking of a certain act or doing something, or we ascribe an Old Testament principle that was completely devoid of anything that has to do with us today, you're causing a real problem. They're causing a real problem for, for Christians, particularly new Christians today. Food is not really the controversial issue with us today. Christian liberty can mean that Christians are freed in respect to activity that's not expressly forbidden. A believer can feel free to engage in such activity as long as it isn't condemned in Scripture or cause another Christian to stumble or fall or sin. Romans 14, 12 through 16 says, Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. Each of us is going to stand before God giving an account of our life. Everything that we did, every thought that we had, Every word that we spoke, we're going to have to give an account to God. And Paul goes on to say, so let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong then for that person, it's wrong. 
If you tell me that you are going to uphold, uphold all the uh, dietary restrictions of the Old Testament and any, any breaking of that is sin to you, I will honor that. You will never come to my house and be fed a pork chop or bacon or shrimp or anything else that's, that's prohibited. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you're not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Then you will not be criticized, then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. Most of these activities revolve around the do's and don'ts of society. You know, what kind of clothes do we wear? You know, what is the dress code in Shawnee Heights Baptist Church? Yes, we have a dress code. Come dressed. <laughs> it, it talks about makeup or jewelry or tattoos or, or piercings. Practicing certain things like smoking or social drinking or recreational gambling or dancing or viewing videos and, and movies. Care has to be taken that the Bible isn't taken out of context to support a personal preference. As the passage in Romans says, these things may not be strictly prohibited by God's word, but they can be bad for one's spiritual growth or Christian testimony and can cause a Christian to stumble. Furthermore, Christians who tend to vigorously promote such liberties can sometimes fall into a very loose lifestyle and, and, and have undisciplined living. On the other hand, Christians who tend to vigorously limit such liberties can fall into being legalistic. I don't do that because I'm holy, therefore you be holy. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. So I'm going to live in my little house with my, with my submissive little wife and my submissive little kids and we won't say beans if we had a mouthful. And we're going to do all the things that good people think they should be doing because we're holy people. And I don't want to be thrown into a legalistic lifestyle because if God says, eat, it's no longer unclean, then you can bet your last pork chop, I'm going to eat it. It's not so much today of the things that we're against, but what are we for? So it's wise to seek God in prayer and to His Word to determine whether or not a particular activity is actually forbidden in Scripture. If it is, it should be avoided. If not forbidden, then we should seek to determine how the activity reflects on our reputation and affects other Christians. And the last thing, Love is the key to selflessness. Love. Love. Love, guys. Yeah. It's the key to selflessness. And I'm not talking about the ooh baby, ooh baby, ooh baby, heart thumping, hand sweaty love. I'm talking about the love that we have for one another. That unconditional, no strings attached love that we have as one believer to another believer. It doesn't make any difference what their, what their skin is, what their politics are, what their preferences are. 
love of the brethren is the thing that holds this thing together called church and makes us irresistible. Why do we have to sacrifice our Christian liberty, liberties? For the sake of those who are not as strong or knowledgeable as we are. And that's not saying that we've always got to be looking over our shoulder, worried about who we're going to offend. It's a hot day. You just finished mowing the lawn and, and you pop the top on a cold bud. And my disclaimer here is, I don't have a problem with you drinking a beer. I don't. I don't endorse it. I'm not condoning drinking, but I've got a real problem with drunkenness. So I'm not going to sit and judge you. If God's given you that liberty, enjoy. You're not going to offend me. But there are people who would be offended. And for them, and for their sake, because of love of the brethren, you don't do it. You see, a selfless community is one that does everything out of love. The very heart of Christianity is love. The love for God and a love for your brothers and sisters. A selfless community is one that willingly lays down their rights for their brothers. And that, my friends, is what makes the church irresistible. Our Christian liberties are not rights that we're, we demand. Rather, they are to be treated carefully. Romans 14, 13 says, so let's stop condemning each other. Instead, live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. To become a selfless community, to become a selfless community, I said, we need to be more like Jesus. Right? We need to Exercise love practically. A selfless community is one where each person looks to the needs of others above their own. It's a group of people who are so focused on reaching out to each other that they never stop to think about what's in it for them. A selfless community must become more like Jesus even though he was God and he left heaven and came to earth to suffer and die because he was willing to make himself a servant of the very people that he created. <laughs> That's the Jesus model. When we learn to serve each other like Jesus, we become a selfless community that will absolutely be irresistible to the world. Let's pray.